0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pits of sarlacc and other unearthly creatures, you've pressed the button that allows you to access the man childian candidate on this glorious day. My name is G-Man. I'm sitting across from the powerfully trans-dimensional P-Boss.
1: How art thou my brother, sir? Dude, I am good today. I feel excited. I feel like, you know, things are going well. I feel as if I was a member of the great band Sexual Chocolate. <laughs> How are you, my dude? Yeah, I'm
0: good, man. I'm absolutely pumped about today's show, actually, because we're delving into uh, one of our very first little parts of a series that we're uh, attempting, not attempting, uh, accomplishing. And this is going to be our very first entry into the anatomy of... Saga. And we're going to be divulging uh, certain information about what we believe creates a particular genre or what are the hallmarks and benchmarks of a particular genre. Um, Absolutely. today we're going to be waxing uh, about science fiction. Um, The anatomy of science fiction. What makes a science fiction? What are the tropes? What are the archetypes? What are the bits and pieces that create such a phenomenon? And it's arguably my favourite genre, easily. My default is science fiction. When I play something, read something, watch something, that's kind of what I need. Your attitude, my bro,
1: towards sci-fi, I think, sort of aligns with mine, if I sort of understand. I'm in complete agreement. One single genre with the potential to sort of hold all of the other sub-genres that we love, be it the horror, be it even the comedy mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff, it's, it's the sci-fi, dude, let alone the social commentary, let alone pure entertainment. Exactly. So it's absolutely right up there for me. And, and again, to remind uh, the origin stories of, you know, your and my union, first thing we talked about was science fiction. Yeah. So, you know, says it all. Exactly right. But um, we're going to be delving into that in
0: just a sec um, at length and potentially ad nauseum, depending on uh, your penchance. Yes. <laughs> but first of all, just um, the, the world right now is quite an interesting place. We find ourselves, uh, we're recording on the 9th of December in 2020, the year of the COVID pandemic, of course. Um, yes. If you've just tuned in from Andromeda and are wondering what the state of the planet is, well, it's not very good, I'll tell you. But um, the first thing that I want to say uh, today is that what they've just done, very, very first trial very first vaccine trial in uh, the United Kingdom, and yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting, man. Uh, do you know, you know, the film and the book "I Am Legend"? Well, oh. you know, a bit sci-fi, a bit uh, futury, apocalyptic, and that's yeah. the gimmick behind this. There was a vaccine for what I think was cancer, and then everyone turned to zombies. So <laughs> we yeah. could be, in fact, on the brink of a little, you know, a second apocalypse, but a zombie, uh, you know, flavored apocalypse this time.
1: Mm. Yeah, I feel a mixture of fear, mild excitement, and a somewhat steely determination because I feel like I ha- I've got enough information as to I don't know if I would say survive. I might even go further and say how to thrive, thrive nice. a zombie apocalypse there'll be immediately vast reduction in numbers of all those naysayers over the years that told us that we were silly for reading comics Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. loving all that sort of stuff they won't understand that you've got to go for the head they won't that's right that's right secretly training for years you know this is the thing most of us
0: dudes man, child in candidates are
1: ready (laughs) yeah yeah it's my excuse for not getting a lot of things done it's like hey I'm training, man. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I mean, how do you see it? I am a bit worried. I feel like we've seen this movie and... uh... Yeah. yeah, I'm not as well yeah, we have. I'm not as well armed as Will Smith. No,
0: exactly. Well, it feels like it's an ongoing sort of TV show this one. We've just gone through season one and you know, the uh the vaccine being released is season two. So let's see how this evolves. It's gonna be quite wild. And um they said there's gonna be um, you know, they're ramping up in the creation of the vaccine, of course. And um there's eight hundred thousand vaccines right now for the uh you know the elderly and healthcare workers on the front line. So there's eight hundred thousand zombies. Um, that yes. we know of, <laughs> that we have to
1: deal with. So, you know, we need to prepare for that. So, you know, get your cardio up. <laughs> and the elderly are pretty crabby by definition, so they'll, they'll be quick to bite. You know, they'll be biters very quick, you know. They really will be. The frontline sort of zombies, uh, you know, they may maintain a little of their humanity for a bit longer, but no, those elderly, they'll be going straight for the jugular. Now, my question to you, dude, is <laughs> which form... Of zombie do you think we'll get like would we get the George Romero mm. you know ambling sort of shuffling sort of ones or would we get the more modern sort of interpretation like Jesus some of the sprinters because I've got to say if it's the shambling ones that's fine no problemos but my god man in some of those remakes when they were sprinting it was like that is truly yeah. horrifying for me because I'm, I'm not a runner. The
0: rage zombies, man, I can't deal with that one. Like they are too fast, they're too angry. I do like the the shamblers, man. You know the classic zombie. You know, give me, give me, give me the Shambler. I reckon I can take out a horde of them.
1: All you need is a seven iron and you're all good, and a bit of time, you know, and maybe some water, and you're good. <laughs> That's right.
0: A grey nickels and some barbed yeah, wire. Yeah. You know, keep it simple, folks. Keep it simple. Um, we've got a little bit of Hollywood news too in the in the realm of. Um, Mm, we had a, an episode recently, didn't we? Well, a couple of months oh. ago about uh, video game movies or, or, or yes. movies that have been made based upon video games uh, more accurately. And there's one coming out very soon, um, it seems. And um, can you tell our viewers what we're to expect, please, P-Boss? What are we looking for here?
1: I'm going to preface this sort of current event discussion with a little bit of a neg. Like, I don't harbour great hope For this, and I think some things in life should be left well alone. And I believe that the idea of creating a movie out of Metal Gear Solid is fraught with danger, my friend. Yeah. uh, What what are
0: your initial thoughts? Well, really very negative, I'm afraid. I'd love to leap out and say, wow, I'd love to see a silver screen iteration of one of the best video game franchises of all time. Yes, of course I would. But the fact is that there's, you know, five like official solid entries into this franchise and they are, you know, Kojima, Hideo Kojima, the creator, he makes these as they're basically interactive movies already, like. You know, there's probably about 48 minutes of actual gameplay um, in a 20-hour game. The rest is actually just cutscenes and exposition, blah, blah, blah. So yes. you've already got this amazing wealth of, uh, you know, narrative. How are you going to shoehorn that with any sort of degree of success within, you know, an hour and a half to two-hour time frame? I just, oh, it's one of those things, man. I just don't think it can be done um, well, <laughs> which breaks
1: my heart. Yeah, I agree. As we discovered when we did the episode of video game movies, they never really rise much above a four or a five out of ten, and some of them just sit right at the bottom of the UVA Bowl. So... It's just historically, it's just a crossover that just doesn't work. Like <laughs> yeah, they there, do. there really haven't been many that work. Like you said, it's a very quirky almost style of game creation. So I'm just not sure if a lot of that style will sort of transpose over onto the screen. I'm super happy about the idea of Oscar Isaacs having a go at, at playing the mm. great man. If anyone could, he probably could, but... I'm just, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't yeah. want it to happen. Ever since they turned uh, Hitman into a movie, that was it for me. It was like, I, I just, I cannot do this anymore. You're right about the
0: nuances and the weirdness that Metal Gear Solid games actually are. Kojima is a weird yes. guy, man. And they are super, super weird. They're very Japanese and they're very Kojima as well. It's almost, he's a, almost a sub-brand of the Japanese subculture for this sort of brand of video game. So how are you going to pick this up? Up in this medium is going to be really quite baffling, but um, you know what? I'm willing to uh, throw caution to the wind and wait for it to come out on DVD and watch it then. But you know, I, I've got a feeling, man, this is not one of those ones because I've been burned before. This is not one of the ones I'm racing to the uh, the cinemas to see. Oh no, you know,
1: I fear the. Burn. Oh no, there is zero chance of this this little guy going to a cinema and paying money for this production. It's uh, yes, at, it's at best, it's a rip for me. <laughs> like I I ain't even going to pay for a DVD rental, my son, because uh, yeah. chances are it's just going to be a drink coaster. I can't. I can't. <laughs> Feel- I've been hurt too many times, G-Man. Exactly,
0: man. And, you know, how how many times do you have to be hurt before trust is lost, man? <laughs> That's the point, you know? And we're at the bottom of the bucket here. So, you know, and, and also they're doing an uncharted film, you know, Nathan Drake, and they've cast, uh, you know, Spider-Man, Tom Holland, okay, who is arguably far too young for the role of Drake, but that means that they're going to be doing like a, you know, a, a pre-Drake sort of thing, doing a, you know, a bit of a prequel to uh, what actually transpires in the video games. But, you know, I'll leave that up to the the viewers' discerning point of view, whether they think that's a good idea or not. I certainly don't,
1: once again. Yeah, there's only one Drake equation that I'm interested in, and we've already done that episode. Again, respect to Tom Holland. Like, again, it's good casting. If, mm. if someone can pull it off, it, it's probably that dude, but... My friend, yeah, it's that letter between X and Z. Just you know, why are we doing this <laughs> exactly? Can we not write stuff? Can we not write original ideas? And oh, don't get me started. I feel like a cranky old guy. Oh, I am. Well, it's starting
0: early, then, isn't it? Goodness me. Yeah. No, I feel exactly the same, man. But anyway, look. There's a little, uh, a little weekly roundup. Now, let's, if you wouldn't mind, do you want to launch into the into the flesh of the matter today? We're doing the anatomy of science fiction films now do you want to guide this crazy bus towards some sort of uh idea of where we're going p-boss you inspired
1: me last week with your rules initially met with a little bit of scorn i was like ah look at rules McCavity here but (laughs) i think it was good so maybe rules is too harsh a word here let's maybe use words like parameters So I think inspired by your good self will apply some sort of parameters. The objective of this discussion is to say this is the Manchildian template for what we think makes for great sci-fi. So I've got a couple of principles or ideas here, dude, if you don't mind me just flowing. Mm -hmm. Oh, please, please. What are the key ingredients in a good sci-fi? Not necessarily in order, but we've discussed before that exposition Point number one, exposition is vital in science fiction. And so not only do we need good exposition, but usually that's connected to having really good exposition characters so we'll unpack that ideally these are the people that translate all the physics-y science-y sort of stuff that's going on for other characters but in doing so also you know for us the audience the second idea or parameter that we're going to set is There must obviously be a hero. So we need the hero's journey here. There must be a hero who faces adversity and is forced to change and ideally becomes the better for it. So we'll unpack that with some examples. A third ingredient that is often key in sci-fi and arguably in many types of movie production is that there must be a clear villain and ideally in science fiction... There, if there is some area of relatability to the villain, it makes it much more of a substantial impact on the story. Yeah. Point number four, again, not necessarily in order, but this is an important one, is great lore, as in L-O-R-E. So we need a great universe around that science fiction. We need great culture. We need great ideas. So strong lore is another key ingredient and point number five which again is probably transferable to all movies but i think particularly important in sci-fi is there must be an abundance of characters that we care about and i wrote care Mm -hmm. in capitals here my dude yeah. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? That's
0: uh the title of our first episode too is um Who Cares About Crewman number seventeen. <laughs> that's right. And that was really very much about, you know, the uh, the amount of interest and intrigue that you have is really often defined by how much care you do have for the characters. If a guy gets knocked off who you don't really care about, well, There's no weight to it. It's fine that he's gone. You know, you're not actually going to miss him. So, yeah, that's a really good point, man. Love your parameters. Yeah, look, you know, these
1: are stuff that you and I have talked about for years. So as we go forward in this episode, that's what we're going to be doing. We're sort of going to discuss these parameters a bit more. We're going to look at some examples, you know, then perhaps apply some of these parameters to science fiction movies to to be indicators of what we think is what made these movies more or less because of their absence successful. Yeah. Fantastic, dude. I like it. I like it. And look,
0: before we delve into there too, I've got a few parameters of my own over here, if you wouldn't mind me throwing. Do tell. A couple of things to uh, for us all to consider while the uh, program ensues. I've had a little think about what actually uh, science fiction really sort of is and it breaks down into lots of different things especially in the in the film medium there's there are many different avenues for a science fiction film to go and so I've broken it down to these really interesting ideas right and so I'll start softly and Ooh. one of the the subgenres for me of science fiction is what I call the elegant science fiction Ooh. which is a little bit slower. It's a little bit more meaningful. It's a little bit more thoughtful. So you'd have feature films in there such as uh, Kubrick's 2001. You know, this is a meandering, thought-provoking experience. Uh, Sunshine is another one with a very decent pace. Contact, Carl Sagan's and Interstellar, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. In my mind, these are elegant. They have, you know, very divisive ideas and start getting your juices flowing. Yeah. Um another subgenre is the sci fi horror. Oh. Which dude. is um very prevalent. And this is like a lot of science fiction sort of lends itself to the idea of horror. Because outside in space, if you're in a spaceship, it's terrifying and you die. It's it's always scary in space. Mm. just is. So you've got Event Horizon, Alien and Terminator chucked in there for good measure. Yeah. To move on, an alternate or near future science fiction oh. would be Robocop or District 9, where we're still grounded in reality just a couple of years more advanced. Yes. Um, and there are many other examples of that one too. Two more to go would be um, what I like to call the Mind Flay. Ooh. Now that's... Um, something that really really confronts you and gets you thinking that's when we're talking about the matrix yes um source code the terminator with a bit of time travel thrown in you know there's actually something really different a whole new concept for you to wrap your head around and it might take years or it might take minutes depending on the delivery or you know the substance and finally probably my favorite ...style of sci-fi, is what I'm referring to as the high fantasy sci-fi, which is our space operas. Ultra-futurism, we've got... Well, that's Star Trek, that's the fifth element, that's of course Star Wars as well. So... These little sub branches for me, I can really sort of uh, begin to quantify what science fiction actually is. And I hope that it hasn't thrown our parameters off too much because we've I've just entered five into the equation, which means we've now got ten parameters to what should have been a very simple conversation. I think that might help us and guide us in a little way and just be able to quantify what exactly we're
1: talking about, just for my sake as well. Yeah, man. No, I absolutely dig that. And you know, this is a genre that I think benefits from some deep thought and some pulling it apart, really. With good sci-fi, there's so much to it. I mean, like you said before, for God's sake, you're in space to start there. That that is that, <laughs> it's a miracle. It's a complex miracle of the meeting of so many uh, th- so much thought and science. I think the more parameters, the, the better. So why don't we start off with, if it's okay with you, point number one on my list, and then we can maybe go over to you know a point on your list. Yes. To me, one of the things that makes science fiction work or not work is exposition. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? I'm with you. If I'm going to give some classic examples of expositors, and I really don't even know if that's a word. I love that (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean, right? I know exactly what you mean. Regular listeners of this program would know that I loves me some Stargate. I loves me the whole Stargate universe pretty much including all the TV series and the spin-off. So classic expositors would be if we're looking at say for example SG1 would be a Samantha Carter type person. Yeah. Rodney McKay from Stargate Atlantis. Another famous expositor for example in Star Trek would be someone like a Spock. So you need someone who is kind of making sense of some pretty complex scientific ideations in these programs. And I guess for me, my dude, and I'm going to ask you in a moment what makes it work or not work, but for me, what makes it work is, A, I need enough information to understand what's going on. B, I need it presented in a readily accessible way. I don't want to feel like I'm sitting in a physics lecture. (laughs) And I ideally need it to be presented in a way that contributes to the story spock if you've got the answer tell us physical reality is consistent with universal laws where the laws do not operate there is no reality what about you my friend like how does exposition work or not work for you
0: well it's absolutely critical man and i'm really glad you identified and highlighted that um and my prime example of uh exposition or an expositor is Crichton, the character Crichton from Farscape. wow who um his dealio His he's Created a wormhole device on planet Earth as we know it, and he's flung through it, and he's lost Earth basically, and all of a sudden he's on a he's on a ship called the Leviathan with all these crazy creatures. Now this is the perfect perfect expositor, right? To use our new word, um, <laughs> because this guy knows nothing absolutely nothing about what's going to happen, and neither do you as the viewer. So we're seeing it all through Crichton's eyes, and he's got to go, what the hell is going on here? And then this alien will explain it to him. And so you actually get this amazing flow and fluid understanding as as the viewer, but as the character understands it as well. So that's the really critical part, because as you said, there's nothing quite like the pretension or... The the feeling of being patronised by, you know, totally. some high-end physics when it's just chucked at you with no actual grounding. So, yeah, that is 100% absolutely uh, necessary as far as we go there, man. Well identified, I'd say. Thank you.
1: My dude, when I think of bad examples of exposition, I think mostly the most recent version of Star Trek, There's exposition that goes on in there and it's either too much or it's too little, mainly too little, too often. So that show is very much based around, don't think about anything for too long. Let's just move to the next thing. Oh, that's exploded. Oh, there's something new. Don't think about that for too long. And so I'm actually going to say it that I think one of the fundamental problems of that program is the way they do exposition and the inconsistencies in exposition and that's another thing that kills me is this may well bleed over into our other principle of law but uh you have to be consistent so you can't you can't sort of create exposition that sort of is is proved to be invalid or if you do, man, there's got to be a really, really good reason. MacGuffins are just, yeah, something that sort of pisses me off in sci-fi. So I will cite that as an example. And, and really when I was prepping for this episode, I kind of finally thought to myself in amongst a whole bunch of stuff that I don't really like about that show is, yeah, the exposition is just too too frequent and too little and too inconsistent.
0: Yeah, well, I... Yeah, I hear
1: that. Exposition is for not only for the for the hero and the other characters, most importantly, it's for us. We've got to know what's going on, and yeah, it, it influences why we care. And also, the expositor is also supported by the person who asks the questions. It's most often the hero. But just before we move on to the next point, honestly, I, I think some of the best examples of exposition supported by person asking the questions is honestly Rick and Morty. Just <laughs> such <laughs> yes, a dude. fantastic balance between the sci-fi jargon and also then just, ah, don't worry about it. You don't need to know about it. And really well supported by by Morty constantly questioning. Oh, jeez, Rick, doesn't have to make sense my dude it can just be yeah it can just be stupid and fun and funny but when you get that balance right like my, my lord and really when you think about Rick and Morty my brother it's just classic one and done episodes so it's not like a running series where each episode constantly affects the other the thing about the one and done Star Trek uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Although there are overarching themes, the, mostly it was one and done. Of course, the Twilight Zone being probably the best example. Or even modern day with Black Mirror as well. That's the same sort of thing, man. I think I've seen all the episodes, but none in order. <laughs> you know, It doesn't matter. A hundred percent, my yeah. brother. You've got to get your exposition and your questioning down to an art form, otherwise it's yes. just not going to work. Probably the the other best example that I've ever seen of continuous exposition with a mixture of one and done and also overarching themes would be Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. Well, having
0: um, 40 years of Doctor Who under one's belt, you know, sort of refined the art form in a lot of ways, you know, as well. It's been a lot of practice and a lot of trial. And
1: error. Well, when you think about it, he's a challenging character because he has to be the expositor. He kind of has to be the hero. Um, he has to fill so many roles. He's, he's, you know, the Doctor is a unique and complex character. I mean, just from a production perspective, but um, but yeah, so uh, that's, that's exposition me me um if yeah, i'm thinking if you're you know let's cross to you for one what was that first one on your list thank you for the expositors there bro and i love the new word that we invented over there. <laughs> you know we just got to look that
0: up actually if that's not in the Oxford, then it bloody should be oh, you know? i know i know yeah, and so, all right, well, another example of um, well, what you brought up, another a thematic idea behind uh, what makes sci-fi is there is a hero's journey, generally in most tales, you know, where yeah. a hero must face some um, adversity in some sort of way and change or potentially be changed uh, for the better, for the betterment of themselves or for the story on a whole. And so I think classically, like when you've got, you think of the hero's journey, you've got the cliched Luke skywalker story from star wars of course who you know that that is an archetypal tried and true tale that comes all the way from king lear um and then done with the uh hidden fortress from akira kurosawa and so this is like a thematic thing that's happened the the whole time throughout stories and every disney film is basically this isn't it like the hero's journey there's a rise and fall i mean luke skywalker and simba it's a relatively similar tale it's you know it's really quite baffling um And how – how I don't know how general that is, you know, across all genres, not just in sci-fi, but um, more so here because, I mean, there's more at stake. You've actually got the galaxy at stake, you know, with this hero's journey. It's not just the kingdom or the world. This is the galaxy, man. And, um, you know, that kind of – what's what's a a good example of that apart from Luke Skywalker in your
1: mind? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I was thinking to myself in many ways – Kirk, you know, Captain Kirk, changes and he evolves kind of this brash, narcissistic pain in the bum, really, when we first encounter him in the original series. And Mm. But by the end, he's taken on attributes. Ideally, he's taken on attributes of Spock. He's become less trigger-happy. He's become more discerning. He's always the guy that's still going to sort of take the leap. But I think most importantly... From a lot of hero's journey, he becomes the guy that will sacrifice himself for for the good of others readily by the end. You know, including some of the movies too.
0: Yeah, yeah. And look, uh, there's something about that too. And one of uh, Spock's sort of famous quotes is
1: the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few
0: and after like three seasons of spock telling kirk this i think he starts to actually get it you know in a way and so yeah which is quite amazing so that's where the sacrifice will come in for kirk he's actually like okay spock i've heard you and uh, this isn't about me. We can actually, you know, it's really quite interesting, isn't it? So he actually, um, Kirk becomes more so in the Star and captains than, um, you know, Picard was already sort of wise. Noble. Um, Janeway, already sort of wise. Yes. And already had these understandings. Whereas Kirk was this, um, as you said, trigger-happy sort of larrikin uh, bouncing around space trying to find anything with three boobs. And um, he succeeded. And congratulations, Captain Kirk. <laughs> yes. but. Over the course of time, he then became a little bit humbler, a little wiser after he'd seen some stuff and done some things, you know. So, yes, he actually is a really, really fine example of a a character that um, evolves not just over the course of perhaps a film, but over the course of many seasons. We've seen this man, you know, go through all of these trials and tribulations, then to become this wise, wizened, sort of still plucky hero that we know and love today. So Captain Kirk's a fine example, bro.
1: The other one that sort of jumps out at me is perhaps one of the best depictions of the hero's journey motif would have to be Neo from the Matrix. Now, again, I guess I'm going to drill down here and sort of say Neo from the first Matrix movie. I think his hero's journey kind of got blurred and weird in the subsequent movies. But really, that first Matrix sort of nailed that hero's journey idea. I mean, if you think about the Neo that we first meet at the beginning of the movie, you know, sitting in his little office to the guy that we sort of have at the end, the virtual Who's God. stopping bullets? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. another one that comes to mind for me. And again, these examples, these three examples, the the stuff they've been through is by no means pleasant. No. They haven't always faced it well. No, I don't even know what I'm doing here. We're wasting our time. They haven't always faced faced it willingly. Um, and I think this is the point of the hero's journey because it is, a, it is a parallel between our own lives to say, listen, as you're cruising through this thing called life, you're going to have highs and you're going to have lows, neither of which really define you. You're trying to just sort of keep going and learn and cruise through the middle. So... Mm. Yeah, yeah. Those are the examples, I think. What about you? Do you have... Well, yeah, I do, a little bit. A,
0: a little tangential thing here, and this is um, this is not directly, and this is what we're about, humans who've tuned in, a little tangential time Please. here. Um There's a little bit that happens, and this is high fantasy, not high fantasy sci-fi, but this is from Harry Potter. There's one actual uh, scene, right, where um, he's formed sort of, uh, this is uber nerdy, and I do know some stuff about this. uh, Dumbledore's army is just starting to assemble, and it's all the students who've been disallowed to actually learn proper magic. So Harry decides that he'll teach them right? And so when they get into the very first meeting, they're all like, Harry, I heard that you did this thing. I heard you did that. This is amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And he looks at them all and he says, I thought I was going to die the whole time.
1: It wasn't wasn't easy.
0: It was scary. And I hated every second of it. You know, it's actually, that's part of the hero's journey. Generally often, most likely they're the anti-hero. They're not doing it They're actually doing it because they're about to die. (laughs) It's not they're going out, well, I'm going to be a hero today. No, they are under threat by something or they need to help and they do their absolute utmost to do it. And generally, they're terrified the whole damn time and they don't think they're going to make it. But then after a bunch of victories, et cetera, after you can look back after like five years of victories, like, hmm, okay. Well, I kind of did that, I suppose. And now I'm feeling a bit more confident. But... Yeah, it's really quite interesting, isn't it? The anti-hero is basically where it's all at. I mean, Luke Skywalker's first objective wasn't, cool, going to kill my dad and crush the Empire. No,
1: he wanted to go on an adventure. And this is what sort of happened, you know? It's kind of wild, isn't it? Absolutely. And like you said, the parallel there with Harry Potter saying, listen, this this wasn't a cakewalk, you know? Uh, Very much I agree with you. You know, I'm sure Luke would uh, have preferred to have his original hand, man. You know, like (laughs) it wasn't probably his uncle and his auntie still alive drinking blue milk on Tatooine. Totally, man. It wasn't a smooth ride the whole way. I guess if we sort of maybe juxtapose this idea with some discussion or some examples of Hero's Journey that just hasn't completely worked – like I said, my first example that I'll sort of return to is, you know, the hero's journey got really blurry in the second and third Matrix movies. I feel like it got yeah. blur- quite blurry in the second one and was just absolutely shattered all over in the third one. It was almost as if mm. <laughs> it was almost as if, okay, we, he's graduated from human to hero. Now we want to graduate him from hero to god. It was just something that was very difficult to watch. Also, it has to be said for me personally, the Hero's Journey concept was done so very badly in the latest Star Wars movies. Rey's Journey, I feel like it was set up for sort of some similar parallels in the first one. But my lord, my friend, by the second one and the third one, it was just destroyed. She'd sort of just become this Mary Sue that... That's the point of the hero's journey. When you just become already super powerful, when you, you can't be defeated in battle, I don't know, man, there's no risk, there's no gravitas anymore. So yeah. do you have any ideas of where hero's journeys sort of went, went astray?
0: Well, I think you nailed it with um, Neo in a way because by the second um, Matrix film, he really was already the god. And so he, he, you kind of knew as, as a viewer that he actually couldn't be defeated. You know, even against a thousand Agent Smiths, he couldn't be defeated. And you're sitting there going like, cool, we're just going to wait for the battle to be done with no sort of weight to it. I'm not afraid that he's going to die or perish at all in one bit. So he was already there. So that's a big full stop on the Matrix story, or at least Neo's story, you know. Um, And yeah, there's a thousand examples of that, I think, out there, man, you know. There, there really, really is. And that's down to a filmmaking idea and a writing, I think. Like, really. But you've summarized the two with both the things you mentioned. And I was going to mention both, in fact. And um, somehow, I don't know how they stripped Ray's character from being so seeming, could have been so interesting. But at the beginning of the second film with Ray in it, The Last Jedi, wow. I didn't care anymore, Yeah, you know, about her journey. And that was another thing. Whether she triumphed or not, I actually didn't care. So um, that comes back to your very first um, – oh, sorry, one of the uh, other little points that we put, um, the fifth – example that you made is that the protagonist the hero in this hero's journey i ceased caring about it wasn't a crew member you know it <laughs> was the hero i stopped caring for the hero so as soon as that happens well you've kind of lost me and you've lost p boss and you've lost any sort of like-minded human out there in my mind
1: absolutely like do. honestly yeah yeah absolutely
0: um and i mean that sort of ties in nicely doesn't it, when you're talking about the heroes and we've done another project in the past about um great villains and you can't generally, and we discussed this um, ad nauseum in that episode, you can't really have an excellently defined hero unless you've got an equally and proportionate villain for them to be facing off against. Um, And, I mean, what's the prime example there if you're going to be continuing on with uh, the Star Wars theme, Monica? Well, gee, Captain... Oh, he's not a captain at all. He could be a doctor. But Darth Vader is the... Honestly, oh, there is no more evil guy on the planet when you first see a new hope is there yes he's all wreathed in black and in cloak and the deep voice and he's tall and menacing and has some sort of space magic where he can choke people from across the room that's a terrifying adversary man and so you know luke actually has to step up or obi-wan actually has to step up to that level in order to ever have a hope of defeating him and you know in a new hope luke is a farm boy and he, gee man, that's going to be a very long journey for him, isn't it? Like, what do you say about the uh, the nature of, um, you know, how accurate is that balance between having a really powerful and interesting protagonist versus an antagonist?
1: Well, I mean, you've just summarised it. The balance is for mine, and and you know, for the man manchildian way of thinking, it's absolutely vital. Nothing risked, nothing gained nothing interested (laughs) yes yes it's just a thing that you end up just watching it's you know you might as well in some ways be watching sports or events are unfolding but you're not necessarily really really sort of married to the players within and I think the point that we made additionally with sci-fi and again this was just the way that you and I think my friend is that the villain needs to be relatable. Now, this does not mean that you need to like them, but they need to have some element to them that you can relate to, some humanity in a Mm. sense. I'm glad you differentiated that, man, between relatability and likability. Very important. Exactly, my friend. So what makes, within the original Star Wars trilogy, what makes Vader so interesting is that yes initially we meet this guy this man in black this dude that's all powerful and highly intimidating and it's George Lucas at its at his finest in terms of like there's no discrepancy from the moment he walks into shot with the music it's like huh, that's the bad guy <laughs> that's no question about it yeah dude he's not the accountant <laughs> but as it unfolds, particularly when we understand that we see his relationship to the Emperor and it's like, hang on, man, here's this dude that we established as a bloody Terminator down on his knee, down on bended knee when he talks to this other guy. You know, we first start seeing that that helmet go onto his head in Empire. We start to see, it's like, hang on, man, there's a, Jesus, there's a crispy burnt human in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we start to see some sort of relatability, some sort of humanity. We start to see that he's got motivations. He's got things that he wants to do. He's got quote-unquote ethics or belief, which is the reason that we understand by the third movie, it's like, oh, wow. Like, this is just as much about Vader as it is about Luke. It really is. I guess for me, the redeeming I won't say redeeming feature, but the redeeming idea, at least with the prequels, was that George wanted to say, now you see, when you watch the first three, you actually understand that this story is about Vader. It is about this guy that becomes the most powerful Jedi ever because of the fact that he's so deeply entrenched in the in you know intoxity, I don't even know if that's a word either, <laughs> it's a day for. He's so deeply intoxicated and indoctrinated by the dark side that it takes so much extra power to be able to come out of that and then to return to the light. So, this is a slight rant, I guess, with some conceptual defense of the first three, in that at least there was an idea, at least there was an arc. Yeah. Yeah. What a concept, my dude, of showing this guy as a kid. As annoying, yes, yeah, exactly, as he was, laddie kid
0: was. <laughs> oh, that poor little dude! But yeah, I mean, that's um, that adds a lot of weight to it as well, and you see it even more so then at the uh, very end of Jedi, when you know the Emperor is absolutely torching you know Skywalker there with lightning. Oh, And then Vader's looking at the corpse, the potential corpse, and looking at the Emperor, looking back, looking back, and then finally picks him up and tosses him off. Um, It throws him over Ah, the I'm so glad that you made that (laughs) correction. I nearly didn't. I thought, you know what, I'm going to just let that one fly. But there, there's that guy's um, entire arc, you know, from villain to hero. The guy literally saved the galaxy in a way, or
1: saved himself in some sort of final selfish deed. You know? I understand that point that you made and you made, you know, when we talked about this episodes ago, you definitely blew my head off with that concept. But when you still think of him as that little annoying pod racer, understanding that the culmination of his journey is going to be throwing arguably the most powerful Sith ever down the drain, Yeah, what an arc. So villains need to be somewhat relatable Khan, for me, is the other one. Listen to me constantly just going back to Star Trek. But Khan, for me, this uber-human, this augmented human that we meet originally in the series, within the concepts of that series, there's a whole bunch of ethical sort of stuff. So, Khan is just basically that you know saying that we want equal rights. We want the same rights as non-engineered humans, yeah? So yep. the the Khan that we made originally, the fabulous Ricardo Montalbán is immediately relatable for two reasons. Number one, he's got a motivation. He really just wants to fairness equity. Well, that was what he started with. Um, (laughs) And, you know, he is a dude that can stand toe-to-toe with the uber-masculinity of Kirk and outdo him, you know, on all fronts, which makes Kirk go to a deeper level. There's probably been no villain that's challenged the hero to the same levels as Khan did to Kirk. So the reason why that you can still watch that movie, The Wrath of Khan, once you get over the costume decisions and obviously the special effects are aging poorly, much like Shatner, but the ideas are still interesting because the guy has depth. You're like, wow, I want to know what happens to this plucky, chest-beating, Tina Turner wig-looking-like dude. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The villain needs to not only be interesting, someone we care about, but brother, the relatability makes, makes it so much more powerful in sci-fi. Yeah, big time, dude. Absolutely. Yeah, and
0: that's huge. You know, and we've got many more examples, and I'd love to hear any of your examples out there, our dear players at home. If you've got some examples of some very fine villain matchings, and uh, anyone you find relatable who we haven't mentioned today, please hit us up on the FB, and we'll uh, look right into that. One of the other points that um, let's move this uh, crazy bus in another direction, if you wouldn't mind, man. I really like that bit, but it's about um, as you said earlier, uh, having really great lore l o r oh yeah the whole background the flavor to the curry of the sci-fi that we're watching is absolutely imperative you know and generally speaking it needs to for me Cross multiple aeons, I mean, when conceiving something like this, there needs to be the rise and falls of multiple empires and, you know, the carnage ensuing and then people repairing and blah, 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 but stories of heroes past, you know, that um, our current heroes have reference for. And, you know, it's even nice. displayed probably really nicely, I think, in... Uh, the Force Awakens. Sorry to keep on the Star uh, Star Wars bandwagon here, but when um, Ray and Finn and those guys they get into like the Millennium Falcon, and it's something of legend, it's something of myth. They've only heard of it, and then they meet um, General Solo, and they're. Starstruck, you know, it's really quite interesting. So they've heard this person's exploits. And so that adds to the lore of this. And that was particularly nice because we've already known Han Solo as being the hero and we've seen his lore, but then seeing it through new eyes from starry eyed little fans, really, it's really quite amazing. But um, one of my favourite uh, pieces of lore comes into uh, one of my f- top five favourite films of all time, man, is The Fifth Element. Oh. And I just love this. This is Luc Besson at his finest, starring Bruce Willis and Gary Oldman and Mili Jovovich. My God. And this lends itself to the high fantasy sci-fi end for me, because it's set way into the future and there is nothing really grounding it in modern day society, really. And a a lot of ways but that's got such a rich culture uh behind it because it's set a hundred years it's it opens in um 1911 i think in in on the julian calendar so you get a little bit of actual earth history and then launches way 400 years into the future where this is now a problem you know so you've got this huge backstory and that adds to some sort of mythology and you know it's a really rich rich universe um to to think about it allows you to ponder it doesn't give you all the answers you know this is what we want it's to you know to get those juices flowing like an elegant sci-fi would in a way there's a bit more it's a bit slower it allows you time to think it doesn't just go as you said earlier like here's a high-end concept then bang explosion and you're distracted it gives you the time to actually you know sink in and that's um that really gives you um just a little bit more meaning doesn't it i mean that's where it's really at it's it's for
1: meaning absolutely my friend law for me is all about creating a universe with sets of rules and culture and all that sort of stuff that I can participate in, believe in, and I guess understand. Even if it's down to little things, I don't know, off the top of my head, Blade Runner. Replicants, by design, can only live for four years. Cool. That is an essential piece of law that forms the entire motivation for the characters. You know what I mean? And you know, combining a couple of our ideas makes the villain relatable. Roy Batty is possibly one of the most fascinating villains to put opposite a hero, perhaps made more vibrant by the fact that Harrison Ford's uh, character Deckard is maybe leaning more towards an anti-hero. He's lethargic, apathetic, almost coming off like it was a preview of how he would look and act these days. <laughs> but there's a an angle to using again this example. Uh, there's in there's an angle to uh, Roy Batty and the replicants that that is relatable. It's it's understandable. These guys want more life. But it all sort of comes from really nicely established law of just they they only get a certain amount of life and that's it. And that's really that's simply done. The exposition of that is simply done. And there's a thing that we just operate and understand, and we don't even question it, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah, even looking at other examples of law, and this also might sort of lean into where you know law goes awry, but understanding here I go again, mentioning the original <laughs> Star Wars trilogy of just the force that's possibly one of the best examples of law that I can bring is is just to say hey dudes, here's the concept of these space wizards using this unseen universal chi energy, by the end of that first movie, not only do you understand that law, you are right on board with that. And again, it forms one of the chief ingredients of the hero's uh, motivations and the, to, to an extent the villain's motivations. We understand this which is obviously why I said something positive about the prequels. Now I'm going to poop on them, which is why doing something like changing your law with an abomination, as we've whinged about before, of midichlorians is just... Deplorable behavior. It's abrasive. Like, I can recall my dude sitting in the theater when that scene happened and just recoiling like someone had just kicked me in the nuts. And honestly, they kicked me right in the law nuts. Yeah. It was just not okay.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that pisses me off quantifying magic like that. I mean, you don't go to Gandalf and say, "Hey man, how did you do that spell?" and he says, "Well, actually the cells in my body actually vibrate at this per- a certain frequency which allows me to emit light." And like, "Oh, hey. Wow, you just destroyed magic for me. How did you do that?" <laughs> and Midichlorians single-handedly destroying space magic by trying to explain it. Can you just let it be magic?
1: Oh, I feel you, brother. That's the best example of thank you very little I think I've ever, <laughs> yes. ever come across. Going into other law, like good examples of law, again, I lean back towards SG-1 and just that idea of the Stargate. Create a wormhole. The wormhole can travel vast distances across space. There it is. We established the law straight away. It's not overly done in the exposition, and it creates motivations for characters, motivations for villains. It's just done so well if you even think about that original star trek series they just start to go well this is hyperspace travel these are the laws about that here's a beam that just takes your bits apart and reassembles them called a transporter we even have the doctor whinging about the transporter going uh, i just don't think it's medically valid just law when it's done well is vital my friend
0: it really is, vital man. to good sci-fi you need to care about the universe that you're in don't you and there's like when you conjure up a really rich sort of uh environment and we're constantly in this episode we we've talked about um star wars ad infinitum we always say we're going to do a very pointed and very particular star wars episode and this is we've got to be careful not to blow our water too much because this is very <laughs> close to the ball here but it's once again with um, the star wars like as soon as um, you know luke skywalker and obi-wan and a new hope pull up and they're looking over the ridge and you can see moss icely on oh. tatooine over there
1: will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy
0: and then when they get there wow man you can smell the street food you can hear the cogs of the droids turning it's actually you've got this vibrant place that feels very lived in and also somewhat old at the same time like it's all been repurposed and reused and it gives you an ability to conjure your mind further like wow i mean how long has this been here i mean how many people you know that gives you that richness and um that's absolutely imperative and then all of a sudden i'm in i'm fully invested and now luke's uh, droids are being kicked out we don't serve their kind here Wow, why aren't they welcome here? And all, you know, it's really, really rich how that goes. And so that gives it a whole lot more meaning for me when I feel like I'm sort of there too, you know. And that is all encompassing with the law that we're talking about.
1: And that might even be one of the best examples of law or playing around with law in terms of sci fi and the used future. Uh, Ridley Mm. Scott sort of touched on it with Alien. Obviously, George Lucas with Star Wars. We've said it before, but up until that time, most versions of the future, for some reason, just everything was bathed in disinfectant, shiny. Yeah. So, yeah, it just gave that lived in. It gave that relatability. It gave that yeah. somewhat grit. Grit is another great word for it. Speaking of lore, just came to mind then when I mentioned Alien. Even in that movie, you've got class structure. You've got comments from the character that are kind of like the working class about the executive levels. Like, oh man, all these little bits of lore that you stack and layer into sci-fi, it just makes it land. I guess it's akin to on a stage, just creating props and background. If The more layered and sophisticated it is and, and, and understandable... Oh, you're just immersed, my brother. You're just... Yeah. It's good times, my friend. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts further on the bad applications of law? Bad applications uh, for me would probably be uh, lack
0: of, I'd say. You know, when it's just probably assumed, you know. And one of my things for me is... um, I had a lot of hope for this one because it was kind of exciting for me and it's a film, John Carter, based on the book. Oh, yeah. Um, can't remember the name of the book. I Am John Carter, I think it's called. But in that one, the dude's thrust onto Mars and, you know, when Earth folk go to Mars because of the difference of gravity, he's basically a superhero. So he can jump really far and punch really hard and all that sort of stuff. But that's it. You don't really, you know, and there's civilizations and cultures on Mars, but they don't. They're never explained or exposed, and so you just don't kind of care. When you compare that sort of same sort of, um, you know, dusty earth sort of ideology to something like Dune, for instance, which Dune starts half an hour, it's a a whole preface about how these cultures and how these families um, evolved and took up, you know, power in the galaxy. So you compare those two, John Carter falls so flat for lack of lore. You know, and so that's probably my example there, bro. Have you got one there where someone's just taken it in a wayward direction?
1: I'm so glad you mentioned John Carter because that was the one that I was going to go to because possibly the greatest disappointment in the genre for me, I was super pumped when I found out that they were doing it. And man, I I never really asked you for your score on that, but for mine, it, dude, it's barely above a three for so many reasons it just did not land and especially watching that as people that we were who walked in with law so I cannot imagine what it was like for someone to just walk in off the street pay for their ticket and watch that movie dude but I would suggest and you know again this is going to be triggering for some of our audience but you asked me and here we go we are in the honesty tree I would say Bad use of law or bad control of law, balanced with pretty poor exposition. Dude, Ridley Scott, most of the most recent alien versions. I just... Yeah. I mean, that was an attempt of pure law, wasn't it? Like Prometheus, for
0: instance, was trying to fill in all the gaps and explain everything that we'd been thinking on for the last 30 years since Alien came out. And so that's akin to me to holding your hand and explaining everything or attempting to, just like the midichlorian thing. It's, um, it ruins it by not giving you anything to think on. It's decided it for you and it wasn't decidedly good. So I think that's where that in particular for me really falls flat. Um, in the, that's the difference, isn't it? Whether you have law at all, which is, I think, is a, an impoverished way of doing a sci-fi. But is that better than having really poxy and really, you know, crummy law?
1: I mean, would you rather not have it? My thing is that Prometheus. It just felt like I was in a crappy training session. It was for me almost the cinematic equivalent of mansplaining. done yeah. poorly. So, yeah, I agree with you. That was just, it was poured on too thick and too copiously. But what we alluded to earlier was then there was inconsistencies in it. I can't stand it when we mix high ideations with some just dumb stuff. Like you and I have pointed out before, you you wear helmets. (laughs) You know? Yes. (laughs) I'll never be able to get around that. It's just, ah, dude, I can't let it go. But before we move on, just to balance it and not be all naggy, some of the best example of law. I'm just going to posit straight out there, Firefly. Oh, yeah, man, that's one of my favourite favourite series.
0: Um, and it's almost hard to call it a series because it was only one season and a movie, which is um something. But when you talk just earlier about um the concept, and I love that term you used was used future. Um, is that what you used? Did I just no, You did that? not use technology. No, used you did future. not. Thank you. Okay, I had a can you believe I doubted myself for a second there? How dare I? But yes, this is like the outer rim of the galaxy where, you know, it's actually just through lack of resources and all this sort of stuff on these impoverished planets, you get like a Western feel. It's, you know, it's digressed. The human race has digressed into this sort of um, post civil war sci-fi opera Western, (laughs) you know, it's across a lot of genres. And that's uh, Joss Whedon taking care of that. Who's, Pretty brilliant, to be honest with you.
1: You raise a really good point. That dude has created law. I mean, love it or hate it, there was never really any law abuse in Buffy or Angel he did pretty well in the Marvel Universe as well. So, yeah, sorry to jump in there. No, no. Joss yeah. Whedon, even something like Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods is arguably all about playing with law. You know what I mean? Making a play on law. But, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he gets the flawless victory throughout a lot of that for mine. Flawless victory. Yeah. No, nah, that's a really
0: great point, man. And yeah, that that's a crying shame. And that was the same era too, when a lot of uh, really great shows really crumbled under the, uh, the Hollywood Writers Guild strike. And they just had to end them quickly. They went, okay, well, we've got to end this. And they went, nah, that'll yeah. do. And oh man, if you have a that'll do attitude towards anything, wow, well, you're going to get a crumb, aren't you? Like, it's the same way that Farscape ended as well. They just went, gee, we better finish this quickly, you know? And you got these crying shames. So you've got four glorious seasons and then it's hot, you know, this botched ending. <laughs> it's really, oh man, I put all this time and effort and love into these characters and thought about them and their needs and blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, thank you so very much, Hollywood. Thank you for ruining my time. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing. I, yeah, glad you brought up firefly, man. Just it's another up.
1: thank you very little moment. And my dude, you just mm-hmm. mentioned uh something that is a really good segue into the fifth point um and probably worth drilling down a bit, my friend. Yeah. It's essential to have characters that we care about. I can't think of a genre that's more reliant on this. Definitely the horror genre is helped, but you can get away with putting up with the gore and the splatter of someone that you don't particularly, you know, you're not too fussed about. But I think with sci-fi, part of what gives it the weight and the gravitas is that this is happening to people that, A, you've got to know, and B, you care about them. And bearing in mind, and I almost put this down as point number six, one of the core principles or the hub of the wheel of sci-fi is that it really is just continuous applied problem solving. Yes, yes. Particularly if you look at those nautical-influenced universes, so your Star Treks and your Stargates. By nautical, I mean there's more of the whole... Space ships. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the captain sitting there and barking out orders to individual specialists. In those nautical-themed... Sort of sci-fi movies, problem solving is key. It's quite often about rerouting power to yeah, the it shields. It's quite often about, well, quite frankly, it's quite often about rerouting power. yeah, <laughs> really is, isn't it? Yeah, as our characters solve problems, We need to care about who's having the problems and who's solving them, my dude.
0: Yes, exactly, man. That's a very, very good point. And when you bring up the nautical theme there, that's super interesting because damn near every sci-fi, when you say the Star Treks very pointedly as well, they're all basically submarine films. I mean, in a submarine, (laughs) if you get a, you know, the hull's busted, the water comes in, you die same sort of premise in space. It's the same damn thing. And so that also blends itself once again into the uh the whole horror genre. I reckon you know um films like Hunt for the Red October, they're kind of horror, dude, because as soon as this thing collapses, everything everyone's going to die. You know? Yeah. And so yeah, you brought up a really good point there. That's 100% true. And about the power, these are actually like like clichés of the old uh of Star Trek, really aren't they? etcetera, etc. Cetera
1: the power to the deflector shield sort of dribbled over into star wars and mostly sci-fi when it comes down to problems it's you need to reroute power and i'm okay with that because when it's done well within that lore with characters that you care about you just go yeah cool it makes sense you you know you're flying towards a, a major threat of course you'd reroute power to the front of your shields I yeah. get that. <laughs> yeah. Now, perhaps another really good example of applied problem solving is when the Star Wars universe sort of dripped over a little bit into perhaps more that nautical style in Rogue One. Rogue One was further to being nautical style. It was it was a war movie. And again, you know, Rogue One a great example of just continuous problem solving. But I digress. Problem solving was only a subcategory. We need to have characters that we absolutely care about. Ideally, you know, we talked about before relatability with the villain. Well, guess what? Relatability with our heroes and and those around them. Yeah, we got to care about the man. You you think about the difference in the world. You think about how much you left those cinemas back in the Dizay and. You were really thrown. Most people I knew when I was a kid kind of actually preferred Han to Luke. Of course. You know what I mean? If if you had a chance of going to a party, even these days dressed up, of course I want a blaster halfway down my thigh. You know what I mean? I want to go as Han. I don't really want to go as Luke. You know, Chewbacca, C-3PO, pick another universe, you know? Morpheus is just as important as Neo in my world, my dude. Oh, yeah characters that we care about it's got to be done well correct yep
0: but it's also got to be real care as well like actual genuine care there's some weight to the scenario it's no good um as we discussed in earlier episodes having like last minute um exposition from a random saying here's a picture of my kids and i can't wait to get home and see them well, you're going to die in 10 minutes, you know. <laughs> so they've given us a little false, little glossy sheen of care. It's like, well, I'm yeah. told to care about that person. Why am I told to care? Because he's about to die. So Whatever. Yeah, that's right. Oh, well, can I have your shoes? <laughs> you, know, like, you know, give me the code to your locker and I'll have your stuff because you're not coming home, Crewman17. It's that simple. Yes. But yeah, it has to yes. be real care, doesn't it? An investment in the person's character, their ability, and I don't know. You want the story to be propelled by this as well. So the care is really critical to the uh, to the flow of the tale that's being told. Otherwise, once you've lost care for the hero or any of the characters, you've actually lost care for the film. And it might as well just stop there. It's like, well, let's have a wee break and come back and see if I can find some care in the crapper. Probably can't. So
1: that's a big point. Otherwise, what are we doing? I mean, another great science fiction series for mine was Battlestar Galactica. And very quickly, you had these characters that you cared about. I mean, Starbuck and all of these offshoot characters you cared about. Like, Adama was interesting. He he was noble, but he was flawed. He was quite simple in his beliefs around the world, but he was also quite complex. You just cared. I think about when Han's, you know, spoilers guys, and if you haven't uh, got on board with this, you're listening to the wrong podcast, but you know, when Han Solo died, that was heavy for me, my yeah. dude. I cared, you know, and you compare how you felt about Han Solo's death with, say for example, Snoke's death. You just, you just didn't care. That's an example of the
0: most underutilized bad guy on the face of the planet like for two films you're going like oh who is this guy he is so evil he's on the emperor's payroll what the hell is happening you don't know what's going on and then all of a sudden you see him in real life uh three seconds later he's done in a really boring fashion for no real reason and you don't care so i'm like oh, okay well
1: don't get me started here's a character that oh, we're speculating I... could be plagius you know is this Darth that's Plagius? Right. holy yeah. crud if you even think about how you felt about when the emperor was thrown down the tube you cheered you cared you were like yeah like i didn't like that guy but you had a reaction because you cared about him like we said at the start of this discussion you didn't have to like him but you were invested you were interested you cared watching Snoke get cut in half I think the most important decision I had to make in that moment was am I going to have a mouthful of popcorn or am am I going to have another Malteser (laughs) yeah (laughs) I just didn't care Yeah, that's a pretty phenomenal waste of a character,
0: isn't it? And such a build-up too, because as far as we know, we've lost the biggest antagonist, the most incredible antagonist in the galaxy in A, the Emperor, and also B, in Darth Vader. And then here's this guy. This is the guy. This is the new guy, right? He's got to be terrifying. Like He's got to be 10 times as bad as both the Emperor and Vader combined. And nothing happened. Nothing. What a waste of all of our time. And what a waste of the visual artists, you know, that actually created the dude. You might as well have just not had him, to be honest with you, man. If you're actually just going to waste him like that, like seriously. Yeah, it's wild.
1: You think about Agent Smith. You cared about Agent Smith. His little soliloquy. Yeah. Obviously, he diminished as the series went on. But you were interested in him. There was some weight to him. Again, other categories we talked about. The exposition was good. He had some relatability. The end result being like he was a weighty element to the film. When I heard, for example, with new Matrix films which have gone into production and knowing that Hugo Weaving is not going to be in it was was a real blow for me. It was like, oh, this is no good at all. I'm even thinking about other characters, man. Let's look at Lord of the Rings, you know, Dorof's wonderful performance of Grima Wormtongue. Oh. You didn't like him at all, but, you know, combined with the exposition, combined with the lore, the other elements, you know, he was a dude. You, you cared. You cared about him. He was vastly interesting. He was fascinating. Can you think of some examples of characters didn't sort of care about man? Well, yeah, I mean th- there's plenty of them.
0: I think every everyone in Prometheus every character yes. in Prometheus. Like I didn't care. I don't know how Ridley had lost me so well. Like seriously, within the first 10 minutes I've lost investment and I don't know how that even happened. I don't know the moment that I went switch and I went oh. Well, gee,
1: I do not care. Can you compare that to how you felt about Ellen Ripley? Can you compare that to those feelings that you had with that crazy shot of Bishop crawling through that pipe, yeah. you know, with the torch? Like, exactly. when Bishop was crawling along through that pipe, dude, my buttocks were clenched, yeah, you dude. know? There was a lot riding on it, even
0: though he was an android and... You know, technically, I don't know, you're not meant to care for robots in a way, but Bishop was so damn likable and he was just subservient, you know, but you're right, um, and that's it. And because Ripley is the finest example, man, and like, honestly, because she is, she's fragile, she's frail, she's scared the whole time, this situation sucks, yet she somehow prevails and becomes so powerful for it, you know. Her is a perfect hero journey as well, isn't it, in that regard? But that's how you really drop the ball on those characters in Prometheus. And, and to a certain degree, like, even a, a little bit different would be the film, the one I'm choosing, strangely, is Predators. Uh, the one with Adrian okay. Brody and Danny Trejo, when you're actually finally on an alien planet in the Predator films, right? Yes. You're like, all right, everything's a little bit weird. But then you've got this ragtag bunch of dudes that have just been dropped there to survive. Somehow don't care about any of them. So when they start getting picked off one by one, I'm kind of like, good. <laughs> that way he doesn't take up any more screen time. Let's get rid of, you know, let's cull them completely. And so there's another example, and that blends into the horror as well, where how important it is to really care for those guys. Otherwise, you're just sort of wasting time and wasting your energy, quite frankly, when you could be outside doing anything else other than watching Prometheus.
1: Like... <laughs> That's so bloody true. I feel like emailing Ridley and going, you owe me two hours. Yes, please, Ridley. You think about the character development in terms of a movie like, rewinding from your mention, Predator. The first Predator movie, there was so much effort made to just build these characters and it made it so much more weighty when they were under the duress of slowly getting picked off, you know? like. I was genuinely sad, you know, when Bill Duke's character got blown away that was just deceptively skillful in just giving a guy a trope or a characteristic, something that made them relatable and so you know, so you cared it was so well done I mean, out of genre, sorry and when we do Anatomy of Action I'm sure we'll mention this, but Die Hard maybe that needs to be in the Christmas movie category. (laughs) Yeah. You were on board from very, very early. Now, dude, we could do a whole episode on the physics of that. Is it the presence of the actor? Is it the Direction is it the cinematography? Probably yes. All I think it comes down to core concept
0: in that regard, though, doesn't it? You know, if the concept is fraught, I mean, you, you know, sure it might look shiny and really nice, and you've spent all the money on all the great actors, but you're putting a silk hat on a pig.
1: In some cases, you know, it's just too late. Like you, you've screwed from the start. The reason why you come home from a night on the beverages and Die Hard is on, and at least for me, and I know for you, if it's on Telly, you've got to watch it. Um, is because we build this character that we just care about. The poor dude just wants some shoes, man. It's right, man. Exactly. It's a real. That's a really
0: simple tale, actually. Isn't it? It's, it's almost like an Oliver Twist in a way. It's like <laughs> really simple.
1: Yeah, it really is. When I think about characters that I don't care about, I often think also of remakes. I often think of when they haven't completely nailed things i think of the remake of total recall and i and it's just ah, you, yeah you, technically really wonderful on paper
0: like it looks great on paper but then in reality yeah it's just not that flash, really yeah you've
1: just got a character just i just i'm sorry yeah. i really don't care about yeah i'm gonna pause it before we move on or before we Potentially start to turn the bus for home. Just again, off the top of my head, in the water cooler esque style that you and I do. Ghostbusters, man. Uh. The original Ghostbusters movies, possibly the best balance of all ingredients. And I guess I'm going to ask you the same question in a moment. But number one, first and foremost, characters that we care about. There's really not one character in that that we don't care about. The fabulous Lewis Tully, um, Dana Barrett, you know, just. All of them that we care about. Oh, completely. That's, um, that's a
0: like one of the most shining examples of excellent filmmaking. From just concept to, and what they do is it's a very, very funny film. It's technically a comedy, but they give it, there's some reality in there too. You know, there's actually moments when, wow, actually stuff is real. Oh my God. These plucky heroes that I've just grown to love and laugh along with are actually in peril. You know, and it's actually yes, real. Yes. And so then all of a sudden you've just got a, a really great concoction there of taking that sort of seriously, you know. And then also when you look at that one in particular, it's interesting you bring that up because that also is rich with law. When the whole notion of the, uh, you know, the key master and the gatekeeper and z- coming from different plane to destroy Dude, you've got prophecy. You've got all this other stuff that it brings to the table. And so it lends it elsewhere.
1: And so I'm in. Well, you see, my dude, this is what I'm saying. Once you start to apply this formula, it's like we're these weird little sci-fi scientists and we can start to posit reasons for why something was successful or unsuccessful. I do believe it's a transferable formula. And this leads me to the final stage of this discussion today. Could you posit, and I'm putting you under a little bit of pressure here, but could you posit some examples of where under the rules and the parameters you think a science fiction production has been fantastic?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, in this one, it's Carl Sagan's contact for me because... it's it's set now it's it's grounded in reality really but all of a sudden you get these high end concepts that actually start to ripple your brain and they're getting rippled as Jodie Foster's character's brain is being rippled so you're going on this journey with her as well and she's the expositor this whole time as well but then you get this um, because the premise behind that is you get this amazing message from outer space and it turns out it's instructions to build this quite incredible device in which they do and then it turns out to be some you know they think it doesn't work and I'll let you watch this in, in uh, to discover if it actually does yes. or not. the ending is quite wonderful but it gives you this notion it's like wow who sent these messages why are they giving it to us and all this so you've got this amazing richness of lore that's only alluded to really so and that never holds your hand or explains it so you're allowed to ponder as long as you like long after the film has ended long after you've left the cinema or gone to bed you're still pondering on wow who the hell was that I'm glad Jodie Foster made all these decisions so so that's like a really perfect example for me of um, like a relatively modern sci-fi that has sort of just nailed the understanding of what, you know, what a sci-fi really sort of is uh, with the grounding in reality. Yes. too. So, yeah, that's a little example for me, man.
1: If we run down the list, you'd say exposition tick uh-huh. because of the way Jodie Foster does it. It's an interesting idea. It's a sciencey idea, but you, go, you don't get too much, nor do you get too little. Yeah. Point number 2 the hero must face adversity and change and be better for it tick yeah. she definitely grows she's challenged this is where you might remember more than me would you say there's a villain a villain type character in it that's the only hiccup in this sort
0: of uh quantification here but yes i suppose there is it's the government because the world is run by the man the government themselves who want to control it you know jody is the one who's sort of like they want her it's been very easily conveyed she's the one right and they want to do it by themselves and have no control you know give her no control who you know so exactly the government in that regard is the antagonist
1: Bang. So that's a tick. We then have point four, great lore, which you've already referred to. Absolutely fantastic lore. So tick. And then culminating, I think, in point number five, we have a character that we care about. We want to see Clarice Starling talk to the aliens. Yes, we do. (laughs) Well, look,
0: man, that's a nice little tick box there. Absolutely nailed it.
1: I kind of alluded to it before, but my example is going to be aliens. And so... Again, if we if we sort of run down the uh, the list in terms of exposition, it's a universe that's clearly defined. Again, there's some sciency concepts uh, in there. Exposition occurs throughout the movie. Bishop is obviously in a primary role, especially once he's examined the facehugger. But you know, it's done. It's done well, my dude, and we clearly understand it. The hero who must face adversity and change, as you beautifully mentioned before, it's probably not not been done better. You know, Ellen Ripley is a great sage and drinks mead in the halls of Valhalla. Moving on to a villain who must be relatable... I would definitely say that that is Paul Riser's character, who is representing the corporate interest. We sort of later understand that part of the reason why the whole military deployment has occurred is obviously for him to gain military assets in the form of this crazy biology. I mean, would you agree with that, ticks the, uh, the villain? Oh, yeah, and that's becoming alarmingly common, I think, if we look at this, um, that
0: yeah the corporation or the government is going to be consistently perhaps the antagonist here you know which is quite interesting isn't it not necessarily the like the alien itself could is obviously probably should technically be the adversary here but that seems to be more of an environmental impact you know that just exactly that's what that is that's not the actual evil that's happening it's the it's the corporate guy
1: You've said this in previous episodes, man. The reason that I state that Paul Reiser is more of the villain, or I think his Burke is his character name. The reason Burke is, well, such a Burke, but <laughs> the reason he's such a villain is he's turning on his own. It's yes. with much thought and calculation. He's been thinking about doing this from the moment they dropped. Yeah. Whereas you said before, the aliens, you know, they're kind of more like giant ants in that they just do what they do. Yeah, that's right. They're trying to survive. So that's why personally I, I assign evil uh, or the villain role to Burke. And the other little bit of it we said it needs to be relatable. There is a certain relatability to him in that perhaps it's paul rice's performance but we don't necessarily like him or trust him but there's a relatability in terms of the way the marines are kind of treating him with a lack of respect and yeah. and obviously the fear that he is experiencing himself there are three big ticks for me um Great law, point number four. Come on, dude. We've talked about used future. Yeah. This still stands up in terms of turning a show on. The pulse rifle. You probably don't have the Halo machine gun without the pulse rifle, my dude, I would suggest. Oh, the sound of that gun, man. It's unreal, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Sci-fi up until that point had more been about menacing intelligence, whereas this one was more just menacing intent. Yes. Oh, well-defined, dude. I like that. A big tick on point number four, the law there. And, of course, number five, dude, again, possibly as a result of all of these characters we care about, like, yep. you know, Hicks and Hudson and Sergeant A. Pone, all of them, man. It, for me, that's my example of just sci-fi, bang, 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 ticks, and, you know, using our formula to suggest why it's just so Yeah,
0: that's really great, man. I love love the way you've summarised that. Like very much so. And I think that's a nice little quantifiable list. We might even put it up in the liner notes so you can find your own sci-fi and see if it matches and ticks the boxes according to our, um, our new parameters that we've just sort of discovered. Just um, one thing that I want to throw at you before, I feel like we've pretty much guided ourselves almost back to the crazy shore. But um, mm-hmm. one film that I want to throw out there um, for really great concept, for societal concept, is Starship Troopers. Set oh, yes. quite into the future and that's uh, Robert Heinlein wrote this uh, in the 30s, which is really quite amazing. Um, but there's certain societal things that happen in this universe um and we can discuss whether this ticks any of the boxes in the future because this is quite an off-the-cuff sort of film. It doesn't really fit into the, you know, the genre, really. A really interesting reflection on how society will operate. This is what science fiction, in my mind as well, is useful for, is casting yourself into a future where this is the norm and seeing how, if it's well thought out, how well it actually works. And so one of the concepts that happens in Starship Troopers is societal and everyone must um you know conscript themselves into the uh, into the service it's a noble thing to do yes. you must fight and if you don't well there's corporal punishment you will be lashed in town square literally for that sort of malarkey and so it's really interesting seeing how giving that sort of societal concept how well that might in fact work without actually having to you know do it ourselves really so it's a futurist way of seeing what could be possible if we chose to take this path as human beings so that's a really interesting thing for me man and there's a lot of other examples of that you know a lot of alternate um histories and a lot of alternate futures based upon the alternate histories really quite interesting stuff you know and there's a really really ridiculous film um God, damn! it's called Iron Sky, and that's based on the concept that um, it's really schlock uh, B-grade sort of thing, where the Nazis, in fact, didn't lose Second World War, they did on Earth, but what they did, they took themselves off and they lived on the dark side of the moon, where they've since been creating spaceships upon spaceships to come and crush Earth. And it's just really interesting having that concept of going, oh, okay, well, what if the Nazis actually didn't lose. They actually just disappeared for this amount of time. So you get this, this whole other alternate future thing based on an alternate past. And it's, it's a high concept and it's, um, it's a lot of fun to sit and think on, you know? So there are a lot of elements to the science fiction genre, aren't they? And, um, Gee, I think we've really done quite well today in covering most of them, to be honest with you.
1: Social commentary is... Yeah. You've described that so beautifully. The original Star Trek series, gosh, this could be a drinking game every time I mention the original (laughs) Star Trek series... Uh, is probably the another fine, fine example of that. Some serious societal issues going on at the time covered in the, the episodes of that seminal production. And it's one of the main reasons why I kind of love that universe in that Roddenberry was, in my opinion, he was an optimist. He felt like we could get to a space where there was, like, you know, a federation of planets where not only had we learnt to get together, and we had learnt to get on on Earth. We then propagated that idea and gone out into space and learnt to get on with all the other marbles that are, you know, flying out there in the galaxy. Even some bigger concepts that was, you know, brought forward in the next generation of universal basic income of not really having society is driven by economics anymore there's episodes in the next generation where they kind of have to remind themselves and go oh god the place we're visiting was back in an era when they had money that's right yeah you're completely correct there's so many things that sci-fi can address that other genres are somewhat limited but i guess the point of today's discussion is that the effectiveness of how sci-fi comes across is based around a few parameters that we've suggested today, my dude. Yes, man. And really eloquently done too. And I think it's um, yeah, it's been a really,
0: really fun conversation today, dude. And um, thank you for uh, throwing these parameters at us because it's, um, it's really nice being able to understand and quantify some of these things and concepts that we uh, hold very dearly. So this is a very exciting time too for us at the Man Childing Canada in this anatomy of saga. And we're going to be continuing yes. it um, in, in future iterations um which is something very exciting so soon enough we'll tap into other genres that we hold very dear to ourselves such as the action film genre and and horror etc etc so we're going to be doing anatomies of all of our favorites um if you've got any suggestions please hit us up on the facey bees and if you're not subscribed please hit that button please that'd be great just for your sake I mean I don't even mind but I just want you to experience this our dear listener. it's so much fun and this is the whole point I mean we're mostly doing it for us but come on it really is for you
1: that's sort of how we roll yeah look you know we are doing it for us and the one listener but you know we love you one listener (laughs) and to that point If you want to bring more people into the Manchildian universe, it always helps us if you bring a friend, tell a friend, like, share, all that sort of stuff. Precisely. I do feel like there's many, many more of us out there and it's important we discuss uh, such topics as sci-fi and conspiracy theories and all the rest. So thank you, my friend. What a wonderful time we've had and look, Until we are next blazing out of whatever portal that you scry us from, we look forward to speaking to you soon, folks. Ciao, ciao. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye.